Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. Well, Mystery Babylon is making progress toward dominance and destruction this week. Israel just muscle flexed with a show of its nuclear capability. Perhaps you haven't heard this in the news. President Donald Trump is at the forefront of boosting the rise of Mystery Babylon at the same time as Israel continues its progress toward implementing the Jordan option. The economic outlook is getting more negative press, too. Stay tuned for more. First up, Israel's I-24 News reports that Russian fighter jets hindered Israel's air force from conducting strikes on a military base in Syria on Monday. According to the report, Israeli planes seeking to attack the Syrian Air Force T-4 base located in the Homs district were confronted by the Russian Air Force's advanced Sukhoi's Su-35 aircraft deployed to intercept them from the Kamamim Air Base, which is operated by Russia, in the southeast section of Latakia. Over the last two weeks, Iran has been moving around heavy cargo to the T-4 base as part of its preparation for an attack. The T-4 base is divided into three areas, each one controlled by the Russian, Iranian, and Syrian armies. This raises challenges for Israel's air force because the base also is now protected by the formidable Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles. And the T-4 base was likely targeted by Israel because it is important for Russian aircraft and gunships. Russian and Syrian sources report that Iran has deployed an advanced Bavar 373 air defense system at the large Syrian T-4 air base east of Homs. Debka reports no such confirmation. The Bavar 373 system has a range of 250 kilometers and its radar controls a radius of 350 kilometers. The new Iranian defense umbrella now covers all of eastern Syria including the border with Iraq, Deir ez-Zor, and Al-Quds troops and Iraqi militias that are based there. Tehran would have needed permission from the Russian command in Syria before positioning the Bafar 737 there. This indicates that Russia is now removing some of its prior restrictions on Iran's military movements. New satellite images of an apparent cargo transfer from Tehran to Syria containing a variety of missiles last month suggest Iran may in fact be planning a revenge attack as estimated by Israeli and U.S. intelligence. The images dated November 21, 2019, provided by IntelliTimes and satellite Pleiades from Airbus Defense and Space, show a large cargo trailer on the runway of the Iran-operated T-4 military base. The images were taken after a plane left the Iranian capital in the early morning hours and landed at the base, unloading three containers onto semi-trailer trucks generally used by the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria to move and deploy air, ground, and cruise missiles. Over the last two weeks, Iran has been moving around heavy cargo to the T-4 base in the same manner as before Iran attacked Saudi Arabia's oil field last September. According to Fox News, Iran considered striking U.S. bases before deciding on Saudi Arabian oil fields. The evidence is mounting for Iran's involvement in that attack, even though the U.N. has said it is unable to confirm Iran was involved. The U.S. and Iran have exchanged direct fire this week. U.S. aircraft conducted a direct strike against one of the Iranian Al-Quds military faculties, facilities rather, in Syria that were targeted hitherto solely by the Israeli Air Force. U.S. forces shot back immediately after Iran-equipped Iraqi Shiite militias lobbed five rockets into the big Ain al-Assad air base in western Iraq last week. 
Washington was signaling Tehran that the former U.S. non-response to Iranian aggression was over and that the U.S. will now respond with force for every attack by Iranian or pro-Iranian forces on U.S. or allied targets. This retaliatory strike was the first time U.S. aircraft conducted a direct strike against one of the Iranian al-Quds military faculties facilities rather in Syria. Iran shut down its Al-Qiswa South Syrian command center opposite Golan and consolidated its Abu Kamal hub. This may appear to have Iran pulling back from Israel, but in fact, Iran is repositioning itself against U.S. forces. Military sources report that shutting down Al-Qiswa is part of a revised strategy by Tehran to concentrate its limited resources on deployment in the eastern regions near the Iraqi border, which are closer to U.S. forces. This command post, situated 15 kilometers south of Damascus, was the Iranian military's nearest point to Israel's Golan border. According to Debka's sources, the pullout from Al-Qiswa was in response to the Iranians' need to economize on funds that have been sharply depleted by U.S. sanctions. Around 50% of Iran's military manpower in Syria has been sent home, reducing the total to the unprecedented level of 2,300 to 2,500. This is no reason for celebration, though, because it appears Russia is taking up some of that slack. That's why Israel ran into a problem with Russia this past week. Also, Iran is planning to augment its Syrian operations with smaller air bases for different types of drones for use by the Iraqi Shiite militias. Drones are not the U.S.'s only worry. The U.S. government believes that Iran is behind a series of recent increasingly sophisticated rocket attacks on joint U.S.-Iraq military faculties, facilities rather, in Iraq. Please somebody explain why I can't say facilities today. The U.S. is concerned that Iran may be planning new attacks against U.S. troops and interests. There have been nine rocket attacks on or in the vicinity of Iraqi facilities that host U.S. troops in the last five weeks, with the most recent one taking place on Monday. Thank you, Father, for helping me say that word. Multiple defense officials have told CNN that the U.S. is weighing deploying 4,000 to 70 to 7,000 rather additional troops to the Middle East in the face of the increased threat from Iran. In the meantime, the U.S. will impose a fresh round of sanctions on Iran's largest shipping company and biggest airline. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo targeted the Islamic Republic of Iran shipping lines, its China-based subsidiary eSail Shipping and Mahan Air. The sanctions on IRISL and eSale will take effect in 180 days in order to give customers that ship humanitarian goods time to adjust their contracts. The sanctions on Mahan Air, however, will take immediate effect. The Iranian regime uses its civilian aviation and shipping industries to supply its regional terrorist and militant groups with weapons, directly contributing to the devastating humanitarian crisis in Syria and Yemen, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said in a statement. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani said on Wednesday that Tehran will overcome U.S. sanctions by either bypassing them or through negotiations. Now, did Israel test nuclear warhead delivery last week? Warhead delivery that can reach beyond Iran? Last Friday, Israel's defense ministry laconically announced that it had carried out a test launch of a rocket engine propulsion system. 
Foreign reports claimed that the test was of a surface-to-surface Jericho missile. Though the defense ministry said the test was planned in advance, it was hard to ignore the timing and not to interpret it as a warning and threat directed at Iran. Indeed, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, tweeted that while Western democracies accuse his country of secret intentions to develop nuclear weapons and missiles to deliver them, Israel is actually the only country in Western Asia that possesses nuclear weapons and develops missiles for delivering them. Israel's missile systems are well known, but Israel has never admitted that it possesses Jericho missiles. According to The Drive, it's hard to discern much from the available pictures and video and virtually impossible to estimate the rocket motor's range capabilities without knowing how the test article was configured and how high it flew before apparently plunging into the Mediterranean. However, how tight-lipped Israel is being about the launch, combined with Palma Kim being the launch sites, does seem to point to a test related to the country's Jericho ballistic missile family. Jericho 2 is reportedly a two-stage intermediate-range ballistic missile with a range of somewhere between 1,864 miles, that's 3,000 kilometers, and 3,418 miles, that's 5,500 kilometers. Experts believe that Jericho 2 served as the basis for the publicly acknowledged Shavit series of space launch vehicles, which in turn reportedly contributed to the development of Jericho 3. There are reports that Jericho 3 first entered service in 2011. All of the Jericho missiles are understood to be nuclear capable. Beyond that, the Palmakim base is widely understood to be the center of Jericho testing. It is a highly sensitive location which Israel has sought to conceal on publicly available satellite imagery. It is also possible that the latest test may be related to the development of Israel's upper-tier ballistic missile defense systems, such as the Arrow 3. The Israeli Missile Defense Organization tested an Arrow 3 interceptor at Paul Akim in January 2019. Whatever the case, the launch comes amid a flurry of reports about the increased potential of Iranian threats toward U.S. interests in the Middle East and those of its allies and partners, including Israel. Israel today tested a nuke missile aimed at Iran, Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif wrote on Twitter on December 6th. E3, that's Europe, and U.S. never complain about the only nuclear arsenal in West Asia armed with missiles actually designed to be capable of carrying nukes but has fits of apoplexy over our conventional and defensive ones, he said. What you can read into Zarif's statement is now implicit in a need for Iran to continue its missile development and testing. This is further fulfillment of Daniel 11's prediction about the king of the south provoking the king of the north. Moving on... There is another war afoot, as I have been reporting in the last few weeks. Let me bring you more unreported news about how the Jordan option is moving forward with the help of the Israeli government, the Trump administration, and the entire Republican Party. You heard me right. I will have quotes from an Israeli news source about the collusion between these entities to dethrone Jordan's king, Abdullah. Let's start first with how the Israeli government is moving ahead with its plans that will at some point lead to war in the West Bank. Israeli bulldozers have started leveling some 40 hectares, that's approximately 99 acres, of Palestinian-owned land north of Hebron, building a bypass road to connect Hebron to Jerusalem. 
the completed road will make it impossible for Palestinian farmers to reach their land on the other side. I reported last week that Defense Minister Naftali Bennett ordered his office to begin the planning process to convert a former Palestinian market in Hebron into Jewish settler housing, potentially doubling the number of Israelis in the West Bank city of Hebron. This week, Haaretz reported that Israel demanded that the Palestinian municipal government of Hebron consent to a plan to demolish Hebron's wholesale market, where the Palestinian municipality office is a protected tenant. The plan is to build over the market with additional housing to accommodate Jewish settlers. The Israeli custodian of government and abandoned property in the West Bank claims the Israeli government has a legal basis to evict the Palestinian municipality from the market and, as a practical matter, to lift its standing as a protected tenant since the municipality has another marketplace at its disposal. The location of the other marketplace was not specified. The letter states that the municipality will retain its rights to the alternate property's ground floor if it does not oppose Israel's plan. Well, here's some background. The Hebron wholesale market site was under Jewish ownership before Israel's establishment in 1948. Most of the Jews left in 1929 when Arabs attacked Hebron's small Jewish population, killing 67. Under Jordanian rule after the War of Independence, Jordan leased the land to the Hebron municipality through a protected tenancy. After the Six-Day War in 1967, the buildings on the site were transferred to the custodian for abandoned property, but the municipality remained a protected tenant. Samer Shaheda, who represents the municipality, claims that Israel needs the municipality's consent for its proposed plan because the protected status rights include the entire site, including air rights to build additional floors or demolish existing buildings. He disputes that there are legal grounds for rescinding the municipality's standing as a protected tenant. This letter is akin to a threat and an attempt to pressure the municipality to, tar to grant its consent to the move, but it will never happen, he said. All institutions in the Palestinian city of Hebron shut down on Monday in protest of Israeli Defense Minister Naftali Bennett's announcement that a new Jewish neighborhood would be built in the city. Shops, schools, and offices were shuttered in Hebron, and the young men clashed with troops in the city center as Palestinians protested a plan to expand Jewish settlement activity in the Flashpoint city on Tuesday. A Hebron resident who spoke on condition of anonymity said that he saw a group of activists with their faces covered making sure that store owners closed down their shops. In the early afternoon, clashes broke out in the center of Hebron between young Palestinians and Israeli security forces. Videos and pictures showed the Palestinians lighting tires on fire and hurling rocks at the security forces who responded by firing tear gas. Dozens of Palestinians suffered from tear gas inhalation. Yehuda Glick, former Temple Institute director and a leader of Temple Mount activists, has joined the fray this week to increase the pressure of Israel against the Palestinians by surreptitiously putting forward the Jordan option in a video by Uri Bank. The video says CEO of Shalom Jerusalem, Uri Bank, has an important message to all Israelis and the world regarding how to achieve true peace. In the video, Uri Bank calls for Israeli sovereignty over Judea, Samaria, and for reaffiliation of Palestinians with Jordan. 
This is doublespeak for making Israel's Palestinian citizens become Jordanian citizens, after which they will be removed from Israel or suffer a different fate. I have repeatedly stated that because Israel is now a Jewish state, non-Jews will not be allowed to remain, or if they do, they will be required to become Noahides and submit themselves to the authority of the nascent Sanhedrin. This September 2018 Haaretz article quoted Rabbi Uri Cherky, head of the Noahide World Center, saying, Our friends all over the world, the Noahides, you are the lucid persons in a perplexed world. You are the hope of the world. But the article continues, Who are these Noahides? They are members of a new religion, subordinate to Judaism, founded by rabbis from Israel, mainly from Kabad and the religious Zionist movement. According to the World Center, there are dozens of Noahide communities across the world with more than 20,000 believers. That's a hefty number given that the religion was only founded at the beginning of the decade. Small Noahide communities exist in various countries, with the largest one in the Philippines. However, it isn't the worldwide Noahides that are in question at this point. It is Noahides in Israel that is in question. It is Israel's policy that all non-Jews either leave Israel or become Noahides. That is the hidden point of the Yehuda Glick sponsored video of Uri Banks' speech on reaffiliating Palestinians back to their former citizenship in Jordan. He said now that Israel has extended sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, the Palestinians will become residents of Israel, but they will no longer have any legal right, such as the right to vote. Well, this situation is already in effect, since most Palestinians were not able to vote in Israel's April and September elections anyway. Those who did manage to vote will not be able to do so in the future. This also means, although Bank did not say this in the video, that there will no longer be Palestinian representation in the Knesset. Bank further said Palestinian residents of Israel will need to go to Amman to vote in the Jordan elections. Palestinians just simply will no longer be citizens of Israel. Listen to what Uri Banks has to say. The two-state solution is no longer viable, no longer realistic. We have to get on to a new page. You know, my mentor, the late Israeli uh, minister of tourism, Rabbi Benny Elon, used to say about the Middle East that in the Middle East there's no right and left. There's only right and wrong because the left wing has so, been so wrong and for so long about this. And the plan that he came up with is the one that I'd like to explain to you. It's called the Israeli Initiative, The Right Road to Peace. And it has three basic tenets. First is that we have to extend Israeli sovereignty to all, to all of Judea and Samaria, meaning completing what was done uh, after the 67, six-day war in the Golan Heights and eastern Jerusalem, do the same with Judea and Samaria. The second basic tenet is the rehabilitation and relocation of the Palestinian refugees living in Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip. And the final tenet is reaffiliation of the Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria with the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Those are the three basic tenets of the plan, and now I'll elaborate and answer, I'll try to answer questions that I think will be coming, popping up in your mind. Um, let's go back to the first, extending sovereignty. This is what you do when you go to war. And we were forced to go to war against all odds and with divine intervention, uh, this being our biblical spiritual home, we were able to overcome just like the Jews did in all of their history. Um, we shed lots of blood 
over the lands that we liberated in 1967, Judea and Samaria, the Golan Heights, uh, Eastern Jerusalem. In any conflict in the world, when you go to war and you're threatened and you win, those areas then become yours. Especially in a case like ours, where historically and biblically and spiritually, we also have laid claim to uh, the heartland of Israel, which is Judea and Samaria. Now, the Israeli government went and did the next logical step legally extending sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which up until that, till the 67 war were not under our control, and eastern Jerusalem as well. But they didn't do so with Judea and Samaria. They left Judea and Samaria in limbo uh, with its legal status being unclear. Now that situation has been going on for 50 years. Uh, just as a side note here, let's remember that the only occupation that has gone on in Judea and Samaria was done by the Jordanians. The Jordanians occupied Judea and Samaria in 1948-49 when we had the War of Independence and they were able to take control of those areas and we liberated those areas from Jordanian occupation in 1967 and we've had control of Judea and Samaria for 50 years. So the Israeli initiative says enough is enough. We have to get to the next stage, extend Israeli sovereignty over all of Judea and Samaria. But then we, are, we immediately are asked the question, then we have two million Palestinians living there, what will be their status? Which brings me to the next two uh, tenets of the plan. One is rehabilitation and relocation of the refugees. I don't know if you've, if you've read up on this, but the refugee situation in the Palestinian world is totally, ano- totally anomalous to what goes on in all other conflicts in the world. Uh, the, the UN, the international community, set up the, U, the UNRWA, organization as their relief organization, whereas in any other conflict, uh, refugees are dealt with by the UNHCR, which is the organ, the relief organization of of the UN that takes care of refugees. And what is its mandate? Its mandate is to relocate and rehabilitate from three to five years. And that's it. There was a war. People were displaced. They were refugees. Within three to five years, the international community steps in and solves the problem. The Palestinians begged to be dealt with differently. And the world, if you ask me stupidly, agreed and set up this UNRWA organization which doesn't relocate and rehabilitate. It only perpetuates the problem by kicking billions and billions of dollars each year into the coffers of UNRWA, uh, which only gives education and doesn't do anything about really solving the problem. So we have to stop that. That under the Israeli initiative, the world has to stop giving money perpetu- just to perpetuate the problem. They have to make it uh, dependent on rehabilitation and relocation so there are no more Palestinian refugees within three to five years. And the last issue is the reaffiliation of the Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria with the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And this would be the answer to what will be their national status. When I say reaffiliation, I'm referring to the fact that the Palestinians were Jordanian citizens, meaning they lived in Judea and Samaria, but they were affiliated with the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, east of the Jordan River, up until 1988. Meaning even though we liberated Judea and Samaria from the Palestinian, from the Jordanian occupation in 1967, those Arabs living in Judea and Samaria continued their affiliation with the Hashemite Kingdom up until 1988, many years after 67. Why did it stop in 1988? Because the previous king, the king of the current king, King Hussein, who was the king at that time, Arafat approached him and said, this is bad for the Palestinian claim in the international arena that we need our own self-definition. Please sever the affiliation between us and you because we want to appear in the international arena as homeless, as not having the ability, not having a passport, not having any nationality. We want our own self-definition. And as long as we're affiliated with Jordan, we're not getting that kind of attention. King Hussein did what Arafat asked of him, and lo and behold, four years later, we have the Oslo Accords, the beginning of the modern two-state solution. So Arafat was correct on his part on asking for that, and we have to go back to the situation where they are part and parcel of Israel. They will be residents, because we've now extended sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. They will be our residents. But affiliated or reaffiliated with the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, that's where they have their national rights, meaning that's where they vote. They won't vote for the Knesset, even though they're residents of the state of Israel, but they'll vote for the parliament in Amman in Jordan. They can either take a four-hour bus ride to Amman, 
and vote physically, or they can do what I do when I vote in the American elections, which is by absentee ballot. In the couple minutes I have left, I'm going to try to answer questions that might be popping up in your minds. First and foremost, why would the Jordanians agree with this? Why would the Hashemite king go along with this plan? And you have to realize that any other plan, or the left-wing plan, the two-state solution, is the, the Hashemite kingdom's biggest nightmare. Biggest nightmare. Already, the, the demographic of Jordan today has... 75% Palestinians and only 20 to 25% uh, Hashemites. So why is it the Hashemite kingdom or how is it that the Palestinians haven't taken over or taken a majority in their parliament? Because they play games. They play games that are acceptable in international politics. They gerrymander up their state in a way that doesn't allow the Palestinian majority to take uh, control of their parliament. And the West props up the, Pal- the Hashemite king uh, of Jordan, and says, that's okay. You continue to play your games. You've been a friend of the West, and even though if there was a true Arab Spring and true elections in, Palis- in, in Palestine slash Jordan, in Jordan, the Palestinians would take the day. The, the West is okay with this, and the Americans are constantly pumping money into the Jordan King, Jordanian King's uh, treasury. So this is the way that we can uh, twist his arm into being part of the solution. Because up until now, all that the Jordanian king wants is for the Arabs and the Israelis to keep killing each other with no resolution to the conflict. Because the left-wing resolution to the conflict is his nightmare. If we give the whole, all of Judea and Samaria and the Jordan River to the Palestinian entity who has its own army, he will be flanked, the Jordanian king will be flanked on his western border and on his eastern border with his enemies with a 75% Palestinian representation in his country. That is his his biggest nightmare. What we're offering with the Israeli initiative is be part of the solution, allow them to vote. We won't uh, move any Palestinians physically into Jordan. They will remain residents for the state of Israel, but their national affiliation will be with you just like it was up until 1988. And you'll be able to continue from the West propping you up and play your gerrymandering games. It won't change anything when it comes to the Jordanian parliament. Um, you might be asking yourselves, why would the Palestinians go along with this? And the truth is that the Palestinian leadership won't. But we have to understand the, that the Palestinian leadership feeds off the conflict. Just like the Jordanian king, the Palestinian leadership, the Palestinian authority want us to keep killing each other because if there's a resolution to the conflict, they no longer have uh, a need to exist. There's no need for Palestinian authority. There's no need for Palestinian leadership. If the Palestinians have become residents of Israel, we raise their standard of living, which will be part of our, uh, part of our challenge. And, uh, but no Palestinian authority, no, no other state besides the state of Israel between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Palestinian leadership would never go for this, but we know by surveys that have been done, the Palestinian nation, the ones who have been made to suffer by their leadership for so long, holding out for this pipe dream that could never existed of them having their own, they really just want to live alongside us, and it makes sense, and we could give them proper lives. And that's why we feel like if this is implemented by the international community, we could give them proper lives, and it would be a true solution, even if their leadership wants us to keep uh, killing each other. And the last is the international community. Um, up until now, they've been forcing two-state solution down our throats. But we have a new government in the United States. They're our biggest friends. We think that they think that President Trump and Vice President Pence are the right men to finally realize that what we've been doing up until now is insane, and we have to move away from the insanity. We have to adopt something that will get us on the right road to peace. Stay tuned. I'll be right back after these messages. Thank you for listening to the Jerusalem Report on Beast Watch News. Full news coverage with a Hebraic perspective of the headlines fulfilling Bible prophecy. 
Remember to financially and prayerfully support Beast Watch News for keeping you up to date. Send your donation to Beast Watch News today. It takes money to operate this ministry, and your help is much appreciated. It all sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? But for scriptural and prophetic reasons, it isn't reasonable. It is not correct according to the laws of Abraham's inheritance or the Jubilee laws, and it won't work out quite as easily as Uri indicates. Changing the Palestinians' citizenship status from citizen to resident is just the first step in kicking the Palestinians out of Israel. The next step will be to convert all non-Jews in Israel, including Christians, either to Judaism or Noahidism. Now, I don't expect the process to happen all at once. The primary and first target for being removed from Israel will be the Palestinians, whether they are Christian or Islamic. Other Christian groups' deportations may be delayed until Israel rids itself of its House of Israel brethren. We'll have to see. In 2016, Chief Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef taught that Jewish law requires that the only non-Jews allowed to live in Israel are Noahides. He said, according to Jewish law, and now I'm quoting, it's forbidden for a non-Jew to live in the land of Israel unless he has accepted the seven Noahide laws. Now here are some links to two more videos by the publisher and editor of Israel Pundit, Ted Bellman, who is pushing the Jordan option. You can click on those links. Both videos are from December 2017, before the Israeli Knesset enacted the Jewish state law in 2018. So the Jordan option is not a new idea, as I have said. It was conceived in 1980, and that is where all of this is going. It's going toward the Jordan option. Bellman interviewed Mudar Zaran on December 9th, 2019, that's just this week, on the fall of King Abdullah of Jordan. Now, I introduced Beast Watch readers to Zaran in August 2019 when... Uh, Yahweh showed me the Jordan option. I mean, he literally dropped the information in my lap. Zaran talks about the protests that are happening now in Jordan. The areas with the protests are Palestinian areas. And in the video, Zaran announces proudly that he and his organization instigated them. Who is Mudar Zaran? He is a Jordanian-Palestinian writer who has been described as the Secretary General of the alleged Jordanian Opposition Coalition, and he is the wannabe King of Jordan. He wants to replace King Abdullah to make Jordan a secular state and friend of Israel so that Jordan can become the Palestinian state, leaving Israel only to the Jews. The Jerusalem Post reported that Zaran had faced accusations by some in Israel, including columnist Ruthie Bloom and Dr. Harold Rode, the Post's writer Caroline Glick and the Elder of Zion blog, of being a fraud, and that his so-called Jordan Opposition Coalition is only present on the Internet without a real backing in Jordan. Well... <laughs> That is why he has stirred up protests in Jordan in December 2019. He is trying to prove that he, he is somebody. In fact, there are Jews like Ted Bellman who back Zaran. And in fact, in this video, the, click on that particular link, um, Zaran states that the current protests in Jordan are proof that he can mobilize the streets. Israel Pundit 
published another video of Zaran's Sun News interview in September 2019 in which he states that Jordan has always been Palestine and that the only thing in Jordan that is not Palestinian is the king. He also said Palestinians know that their problem is not the Israelis but the Hashemites. Well, I would like to sit with him and show him in the scripture where he is wrong. I doubt I'll have that opportunity. If Zaran thinks he's going to mess with Ammon, Moab, and Edom and get away with it, he'll also have to have a come to uh, Jesus meeting, you know, a Yahweh in the flesh of Yeshua meeting, just like the Jews. Those territories belong to the people that Yahweh gave them to. And you can see also the ultimate alternate Israel-Palestine solution which states Michael Ross, a Republican, wrote after the election of Donald Trump, quote, Trump must speak to Mudar Zaran because Zaran offers the alternate solution that President Trump is looking for. Well, Bellman of Israpundit revealed in his first video that Trump has already met with Zaran many times and that there is a psyop going on to make it appear that the U.S. and Israeli governments are sidelining him. This could be another reason why he has recently been denounced by Israeli journalists and turned away at the border in an attempt to continue the obfuscation of the U.S. and Israeli plan against Jordan's King Abdullah. And there is also here a link to a Facebook video with more from the Jordanian Opposition Coalition. But this image here is a, a quote from Arutz Sheva on April 12, 2019. And it says, the Israeli intelligence Mossad report, reported rather at the end of 2014... The Hashemite kingdom will be replaced within a generation, which has been effectively confirmed by Jordan's opposition. There is more. According to this other Israpundit article, not only is Trump on board with Mudar Zaran, but so is the entire Republican convention. This article is from April 2017. It says, the GOP unanimously approved a pro-Israel platform at their convention in 2016, which stipulated, the U.S. seeks to assist in the establishment of comprehensive and lasting peace in the Middle East to be negotiated among those living in the region. Um, according to David Friedman and Jason Greenblatt representing Donald Trump uh, they participated in the drafting and were in complete agreement with the final text at the time I knew this happened but didn't think much about it now I know they were setting up approval for Trump to move forward with the Jordan option everyone acts like no one knows what is in Trump's peace plan well I now do not believe that his plan is all that secret. The leaders of the Republican Party know what's in it. And it has been noted in the U.S. and Israeli press that the Trump administration does not talk about a two-state solution and never has. Here is why. From this article, Gone was any reference to the Palestinian people or a two-state solution. In addition, the platform included the words, We reject the false notion that Israel is an occupier. If not an occupier, then presumably Israel is a sovereign. This has been agreed upon by the Trump administration and the Republican Party platform that there will not be a two-state solution in Israel. The only other option is the Jordan option. Israel and the U.S. are moving forward with the Jordanian Opposition Coalition to implement the Jordan option. And here is another statement from Israel Pundit. 
1.75 million Palestinians live in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. The 800,000 Arabs in Hebron, Nablus, Ramallah, and Bethlehem could remain there as Jordanian citizens. Well, we just talked about that. No, they can't. Israel has become, by law, a religious state. By culture, the battle is still being waged between the religious and secular, but non-Jews who remain in Israel will be treated as second class and eventually the religious Jews will try to force Noahidism on them. The article further says, Ramallah is only 42 miles from Amman, the capital of Jordan. A new highway could be built connecting all these cities to Amman. The rest would have to be transferred to Jordan. With Jews in Israel and Palestinians in Jordan calling for the end of the Hashemite kingdom, how long will it take before the Jordan option becomes a reality? Well, I don't know the answer to that. But furthermore, according to Isra Pundit, it says, Consider for a moment that if Jordan agrees to grant citizenship to all Palestinians as their law currently provides and invites the return of all of them to live and work in Jordan, the conflict would soon be ended. While King Abdullah isn't about to do so, the Jordan Opposition Coalition would. This coalition represents all opposition groups in Jordan that back a secular state. The JOC, since its creation six years ago, has supported good relations with Israel. It does not include groups that support terrorism. This alliance has agreed to work together in order to form the government of Jordan should King Abdullah abdicate although at least 75% of Jordan's, Jordanians rather, are Palestinians, the king has disenfranchised them to a great extent in favor of the ethnic Hashemites and Bedouins. The JOC has produced a detailed plan, Operation Jordan is Palestine, which clearly identifies their goals and the operational steps needed to implement their plan. Copies are available upon request. All that is necessary for this to come to pass is for the U.S. to instruct the king. The U.S. to instruct the king. Let me repeat that. All that's necessary is for the U.S. to instruct the king, who currently spends most of his time outside Jordan anyway, to not return home. Then it would arrange for the Jordanian army, which it controls, to support the next popular Palestinian uprising and to designate who among them would form the interim government. As part of this solution, all Palestinian refugees enrolled with UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in the Near East could be repatriated to Jordan and given citizenship. Thus, UNRWA would be wound up and the current UNRWA funding could be transferred to Jordan to assist in the resettlement. The U.S. and Israel will attempt to involve the U.N. in this situation. Do you remember when it was announced in Trump's peace plan that there is funding for Jordan to take Palestinians? Well, part of it is to come from UNRWA. The Murad Zaran plan, which Trump and 100% of the Republican Convention of 2016 signed onto, is to remove Abdullah, one way or another, from his Jordan throne. But King Abdullah and his family will be protected by escaping from Jordan. Daniel 11.41 says, And he the king of the north, shall enter into the, into the land of beauty, and many shall fail, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Well, before the king of the north attacks to fight Gog and Israel in the West Bank, you know, because they're trying to relocate those 1.75 million Palestinians to Jordan, 
it will become apparent to King Abdullah that his and his family's lives are in danger. He will escape either as if he is escaping danger or through negotiations with Trump and Netanyahu who will give the family asylum in another country. Either way, Abdullah will be out of the way when the king of the north, that's Iran's, attack comes. This is Yahweh's hand protecting King Abdullah and his family. Now you might ask, why would Yahweh protect King Abdullah? Well, first, it may be because of the injustice that Trump and Netanyahu will have done to him. Second, as I said earlier, the territories of Edom, Moab, and Ammon are protected by Yahweh from the time of the first exodus. Trump and Netanyahu will try to take away Yahweh's sovereignty over these areas just as they will be usurping his authority with the mostly Israelite stock that the world calls Palestinians whose rightful territory is Samaria, the West Bank. But the Jordan option is Gog's and Judah's plan to accomplish the goal of completely ousting all non-Jews. But the paradoxical aspect of this is that neither modern Gog, the U.S., or Israel, the house of Judah, understand that this will be Yahweh's retribution, nor will it completely oust all of the house of Israel brethren of Judah from the land. If they succeed at tossing some of the Israelite Palestinians out or killing them, the Gog house of Israelites will still remain what is left of them after the war. You see, Yahweh said, and you know, he means what he said. He said, I will have all 12 tribes in the land and no one will usurp my authority. So Yahweh is going to have all 12 tribes in the land and he's going to kill those who usurp his authority. So the U.S. and Israel will try to usurp Yahweh's authority in Jordan in the areas of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, which Yahweh explicitly told the Israelites not to mess with. And they will do it in Samaria, too, to no avail, because they will destroy themselves in the Gog War, soon after which the king of the north will attack. King Abdullah will have escaped and Israel as we know it will be destroyed. The next time Israel rises will be under its true king, Yeshua, but not without other wars coming to Israel first, namely Armageddon. Meanwhile, in preparation for a likely third election campaign, the interim Netanyahu government has announced a splurge of new settlement building and boosted other settlement budgets. One more item before I move to the Israeli election. This week, the Democratic-led House voted 226 to 188, largely along party lines, in keeping with the Republican National Convention of 2016, for a non-binding resolution saying that only a two-state solution can ensure Israel's survival as a Jewish state and fulfill the Palestinians' legitimate aspirations for their own state. Now, speaking of the third round of Israeli elections, it appears the next result will probably be the same as the last two results, with one possible game-changer that I'll tell you about in a minute. A middle-class suburb near Tel Aviv has so closely tracked the country's national politics that it has become known as the Ohio of Israel. Now, with Israel initiating the process to dissolve parliament and call an unprecedented third election in less than a year, residents in this town of 140,000 are, like the nation as a whole, divided on whether to return Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister in a new ballot expected in March. Many in Rehovot, while exasperated over a new ballot, say they would stick to the same candidates they chose twice before in April and September, raising questions about how or when the deadlock can be broken.
Several recent opinion polls suggest a third election will yield almost the same outcome, though politicians and analysts said parties might negotiate differently after two failed elections. The Attorney General may also rule on whether Mr. Netanyahu can form a coalition while facing criminal charges, which could also alter the outcome. Some of those in Rehovot say the issue here is religious radicalization. Could this mess force the Sanhedrin to bring forth the Jewish Messiah? Well, Gil Hoffman, the chief political correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, says he believes with complete faith that a Messiah will still come and prevent a third election. Now, here comes the possible game changer, Gideon Sar. Likud is moving toward holding its party primary on December 26th. Gideon Saar, who was once a protege of Netanyahu, says he is now ready to be prime minister. And so what we have now is Trump to the rescue. Two former campaign aides for President Donald Trump, including campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, are visiting Israel this week to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The Jewish Insider News website first reported the visit on Tuesday by Lewandowski and David Bossy, who served Trump as a deputy campaign manager. They are being considered to join Netanyahu's campaign for a likely national election in March and Trump to Israel's rescue in another important way, by pushing Judaism's Mystery Babylon agenda on Americans' population. Trump signed the executive order that he had threatened to do a few weeks ago, making anti-Semitic speech illegal in the United States. The order is designed to cut off aid to colleges that tolerate anti-Semitism, but which critics call an effort to stifle free speech and criticism of Israel. Well, along with pushing the Lashon Hara on Americans, um, this order also violates the separation of church and state because it raises Judaism to a level of protection not afforded to Christianity or Islam or any other religion. Judaism defines anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism the same. The Noahide laws disallow any criticism of a Jew or the Jewish people. You can read why and how Judaism's Lashon Hara law masquerades as anti-Semitism by clicking any one of those links that I have listed in this article. But consider this too. This is a Trump election ploy to get greater Jewish and evangelical votes. Now, quickly to the economy. Zero Hedge this week points out that the economic numbers being reported by the White House are confusing. A confusing economic situation has just been made more confusing, says Zero Hedge. The government claims that jobs are still being created when other indices show otherwise. The Department of Labor and Forbes reported that factory outputs declined in October, yet the U.S. is somehow adding jobs? Forbes was baffled, too. Brandon Smith, founder of altmarket.com, notes that it is also important to point out that the real economic data on employment, GDP, etc., shows aggressive declines. Government data on employment is utterly rigged to the upside, says Zero Hedge, as they continue to ignore around 95 million working-age Americans without jobs. If these people were counted as they were during the Great Depression, the unemployment rate would be closer to 
Now last week I reported much lower number. I'm glad Zero Hedge is here to correct me. If the GDP were calculated as it was during the 1980s, then the U.S. would have negative growth for most of 2019 and would already be considered in recession. Ultimately, the economic crash going on right now will plant its feet somewhere, and right now it is becoming obvious in debt-related sectors. While consumer debt, corporate debt, and national debt are at historic highs, the crash will spread from debt into everything else. Fears of a slowdown in the U.S. housing market are mounting, and Home Depot just slashed its 2020 sales forecast on Wednesday amid fears that the U.S. housing market is poised for weakness in the year ahead. The disappointing 2020 forecast comes amid reports that the housing market is poised to slow in 2020. Next year could see home price growth will flatten. Inventory will remain constrained and mortgage rates will increase, all weighing on sales, according to Realtor.com's national forecast. The November earnings release was the second time this year that Home Depot has cut its year-end outlook, citing issues such as the timing of benefits associated with one Home Depot strategic investments, continued labor price deflation, and the potential impact of tariffs. Home Depot expects its 2020 sales to fall in a range of 35 to 4%. Well, summarizing, Mystery Babylon is rising and preparing for war just when the global economies are not doing that well but are being portrayed as wonderful. These two factors are areas to watch along with natural disasters and plagues for the coming Great Tribulation. That's it for this Beast Watch News update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.